this is Jonah Ray from Mystery Science Theater 3000, and you're listening to Too Much Scrolling, and I'll see you in the future. Rolling for December 13th, 2022. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Chip Hessenflow. We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. This week, Chip, we are in. We are in the holiday season. We got Hanukkah starting on Sunday. Happy Hanukkah to everybody who celebrates. And Christmas is right around the corner, my friend. Eight crazy nights, Steve. And then, then, then the overnight trip by Santa. That's right. 14 hours. 14 hours and he gets to all the houses. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Hey, Chip, did you make it to the movie theater this week? Uh, Steve, I was on the road traveling. I did not make it to the movie. Ah, Were you saying ho, ho, ho the whole way? I did. I did. In fact, I could have used Rudolph through West Virginia. It was a little cloudy. I did not make it to the movie theater either. Thanks for asking. It's not even worth the effort to ask me at this point. But I did watch something joyous on Disney+. Plus. I finally got around to the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. They celebrate Christmas? I guess. I guess this is a Christmas special. There is certainly the mention of Christmas in this because Peter Quill, who is the Earthling. Was it a finger popping, snappy good time, Steve? I don't think you should say finger pop and snap when we talk about the MCU because that that was five years of people's lives, Chip. (laughs) A little sensitivity. (laughs) <laughs> too soon too soon <laughs> peter quill star lord is the earthling in the guardians of the galaxy and he has he's feeling a little down this time of year because he doesn't get to celebrate christmas with his family so his new family the guardians of the galaxy find a way to help him celebrate christmas and, and just so we we know this people from other planets recognize the calendar of earth i guess we'll call it earth december 25th right (laughs) (laughs) it's it's an incredible incredible amount of awareness (laughs) and sensitivity (laughs) (laughs) that's the story of the gardens of the galaxy holiday special you might recognize holiday special is certainly a reference to the star wars holiday special celebrating life day that was put on the air put on tv in 1978 and why why not? I mean, it it fits so well <laughs> within the so Star Wars universe. <laughs> I can think of so many reasons not to have put that on TV. It is so ridiculous. This is not that style of ridiculous, but it's its own style of of just frenetic storytelling. The Guardians of the Galaxy, there's still a novelty group in the MCU. Even though they are heroes, they are very silly characters in some ways. Well, it sounds like they played a little uh, Christmas game during that time, Steve. How many degrees of separation are they from Kevin Bacon? Zero. Kevin Bacon is the special guest star in this holiday special. 
<laughs> the story is very similar to Santa Claus Conquers the Martians from 1964, which is actually referenced in this movie. Kevin Bacon is watching Santa Claus Conquers the Martians in this holiday special. And the aliens come and take Kevin Bacon to be a gift to Star-Lord. <laughs> <laughs> a gift. A person. Yes. Why not? Oh, oh, that scene, that scene becomes very much a, you cannot give a human being that's not okay. <laughs> this is so much fun. It's so silly. I, I love these specials that the MCU is giving us through Disney Plus. This is another 42 minute, very quick, cute little story. And boy, did they spend a lot of money on set design and costuming and all the special effects for this silly little special. So J James Gunn, is he the, the director of this? Yes, James Gunn directs and writes on this special. And his special vision of what the MCU is, is on display for this one. And, and while, why that is important to know is James Gunn, just a couple weeks ago, was announced as the Kevin Feige of the DC universe. Hmm. So Kevin Feige is the person who sort of um, oversees and tries to make sure all the MCU movies have some connection to their shared universe. James Gunn, who was a director of Guardians of the Galaxy and this show, is now going to be taking over to make sure Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, they all talk to each other and it's part of their shared universe too. I look forward to that. I look forward to somebody new being in charge of the DC universe and, and maybe rebooting because I think it, it might be time. So one of the things that we do know about uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy is music is always very important. They had two wonderful soundtracks. Tell me that this has music. This is right in line with that idea of who the Guardians of the Galaxy are for us. The soundtrack for this one, all original music, two Christmas songs that really could be put into that rotation on the radio station that's playing the Christmas music right now. The first one is, is it's a novelty song. It's, a, it's about how the aliens don't understand this idea of Christmas, the, the idea of the idea. And then the final song is actually Kevin Bacon sings a beautiful Christmas song. About bacon? <laughs> Figgy pudding? <laughs> figs, figs. <laughs> and bacon. <laughs> well, this sounds like a lot of fun. And it's, it can be found on Disney+. Plus. Yep, I, I encourage everybody to go and see this. All of my friends who like silly movies, this is a silly movie. And it's only 42 minutes long. And it, it, it goes by. I wouldn't say that it should have been extended. I wouldn't want a two-hour version of this. But this is fun, silly holiday special. You got a chance to see uh, some history on Netflix this week. We use the word history, Steve. We use that with a, um, well, let's just say that it's kind of um, loosely used. Okay. You watched something called Ancient Apocalypse. What is the story here? So journalist Graham Hancock, he does not want to be known as a scientist or as an archaeologist. He is a journalist. Um, and, and it's his show. And basically, he's putting together the beginnings of the Younger Dryas Theory. So you're going to go, what is the Younger Dryas Theory? 
Well, these are eight episodes. They're a half hour each. And what they're exploring is at some point, about 12,000 years ago, in different parts of the world, a civilization collapsed. Hmm. And, and the idea is that humans have been walked the earth for many, many moons, a lot longer than we we think they have. And that there was some cataclysm, the idea being maybe a comet spray or maybe meteors crashed into the earth and basically led to a global apocalypse. It led it through an ice age and the civilization that we know as our modern history is a new age from hmm. that. So it started, I don't know, you can think back at your time, whether you want to go Mes uh, Mesopotamians, Sumerians, or Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, how we would view history. But the argument is, is that there is enough evidence to start exploring this. And the the, the statements he would make, um, or the supporting materials, are there was a, a mass of, uh, of large animals in North America that died uh, very quickly. There were uh, civilizations that built things, like temples and pyramids and stuff like that, where it seems that the more modern the civilization came, the they were kind of regressed in their building material and skills. So why did that happen? And there's also some uh, archaeology, excuse me, some geology that kind of supports this. Now, we have to be very, very clear on this. This is certainly on the most more esoteric ways of looking at things. And this is a very beginning part of formulating some ideas okay. that may or may not be true. So this is not ancient aliens, okay, but certainly at the beginning part of uh, an exploration of maybe rise and fall or maybe multiple uh, times humans have risen and fallen hmm. uh, through history where um, he, he says that history has amnesia. Well, you know, imagine libraries being wiped out, recreating the earth's knowledge. All right, let's go with that. I found it very entertaining. Okay. Certainly it, they learned a lot from the history channel on, on presentation style, but certainly I, I found it very engaging. I found it fascinating all the sites that he visited, I would be like, oh yeah, I want to go there. I want to <laughs> see that because they're, they're fascinating. And I think that whether true or not, I, I think that there's mystery there that we just don't know. We don't know. Reasonable storytelling. You would, you would, you would recommend this to people who enjoy that thought process of what, what was the ancient world? In, in fact, before the ancient world okay. um, of what we would say, Interestingly enough, I have a friend of mine here in Raleigh who has put together a conference to discuss this where many of the people who are interviewed in this series are going to come together in Asheville, North Carolina on June 16th, 2023 for the Cosmic Summit. And it will um, discuss this Younger Dryas theory and there will be people who certainly are amateur, but have put time into, I don't know, kind of piecing together this information. Hmm. I will tell you right now, as of this recording, that Graham Hancock 
who does have a reputation of being um, more of a speculative. He's been challenged on this. And so he responded, hey, listen, you name a place and I'll come and we'll discuss this, as in he would like to discuss it with academics. I think one of the shortcomings of a, of a, a story like this or a show like this is it's usually that the academics are not allowing this to come to be discussed. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is they probably have funding that they have to maintain. And it isn't that they're willing, not willing to, uh, to explore something and they may not be, but it could be that there's no one willing to sponsor that type of speculation and whether it has merit. I think over the next hundred years, we're going to find out that humans have a, a much longer history and we will know more about that history because we'll have the tools yep. and we'll be able to uncover stuff. I mean, imagine being able to fly over the earth and mm -hmm. uncover old cities and all, all sorts of stuff. We have technology that allows that to happen. Yep. Very interesting. Yes. Very interesting looking at, at all of that history and, and, and thinking about going forward, how we could use all of that information. Well, I, I will tell you how it can be used very quickly because one of the arguments is when they slammed into the mile high Canadian ice is that the sea levels rose after mm. that. Mm -hmm. And I'll let you know a little secret. A lot of people live on the coast. Mm -hmm. So all of those cities and stuff like that could be submerged. Yeah, we could we could have the way of the water coming up real soon. Water world, Steve. That's what we're <laughs> looking for. Underworld. I was trying to segue into our opening films this week, Chip. You mean uh, 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 my favorite films are about blue, big blue cat people that talk with their ponytails to their animals? Total ripoff of the Smurfs. <laughs> <laughs> Avatar, The Way of Water is coming to our theaters finally this weekend. This is the sequel to Avatar, which was released in 2009, 13 years ago. Steve, did you see it um, when it came, first came out? I have never seen Avatar from 2009. I had a friend bring over a DVD copy of it. We put it on the TV and I immediately fell asleep because I sat down on my couch. Well, I did see it. In fact, I saw it opening night. I saw it in IMAX and it was a really big deal at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only was it a big deal, I mean, this was one of the catalysts of, I don't know, of the modern big budget films mm -hmm. and instead of being uh based on say lord of the rings like peter jackson uh or star wars which was something that was the prequels were coming out steve we won't discuss those i don't remember those yes uh amnesia steve <laughs> there's a certain amount of amnesia in this world anyway um this was based on what he would say an original story steve could that be argued that it isn't an original story? <laughs> this story, I, again, I've never seen this film, but everybody talks about this film as being Pocahontas or Dances with Wolves or Fern Gully. This is not a new story. Uh, this is the same old, same old people getting into a native people and and becoming a part of that native tribe. Okay, it actually wasn't, but we'll go we'll go with that, Steve, as a person who's never seen the film. Let's just say that it was really, really big. Yes. And then it just has no lasting um I, I mean, no very few people reference it. 
with the exception of if you went to Animal Kingdom and you rode mm-hmm. the ride, you're you're riding the back of a uh, I don't know flying creature uh-huh. with your ponytail and you're having a great time. Because and I think that's really the the impetus to this sequel is that ride at Disney World. I don't know. I think James Cameron is a director, mm-hmm. and in fact, he has directed some incredible films that many people in fact some of the highest grossing films of all time terminator steve mm-hmm. um also titanic, titanic. Mm-hmm. um and then because of his sort of interest in the titanic he funded a lot of research going down and seeing the titanic at the bottom of the sea mm-hmm. he created um I, i'm assuming this technology for avatar um and then he basically turned to the movie studios and said, I'm going to make a whole series of movies Mm -hmm. uh, based on Avatar and took a long time to do it. And when he was questioned about it, he turned to the studios and said, you see all those buildings, the movies that I created built those buildings. Mm -hmm. The staff that you have were paid from the revenue I brought in because he did make some of the highest grossing films mm-hmm. in addition to that when the public started saying you know kind of making fun of the big blue cat people he turned to the public and said you've loved my movies trust me mm-hmm. so all i can say about this is trust him and i guess we're going to go see avatar the way of the water steve yeah it's amazing to look at his track record the, the first movie 13 years ago made three billion dollars worldwide and they took that money and they're investing one billion dollars in these sequels they have four sequels on the books ready to roll they recorded the first two avatar two and three this one coming out this week and then avatar three will hit theaters next year then they will go and film four and five which are suspected to be in theaters in 2025 and 2027 well uh, james cameron is a person to trust all i can say is uh, we're going to find out if it's good this week because you know the other two options are probably not going to be breaking uh, box office records yeah everything else got out of the way of this behemoth for sure there is an ifc film called the almond and the seahorse that's being released this week this is rebel wilson in a very dramatic role a story about traumatic brain injury well that's there and then we have one that actually looks kind of interesting yeah, we've got the the guy behind all the special effects from Jurassic Park is being featured in a documentary this week called Jurassic Punk. This is Steve Spaz Williams, who was the pioneer in computer animation in the early 90s. So he worked for Lucasfilm. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very interesting that they would choose to release it this week with Avatar, which is also going to have a lot of computer animation in it. And he worked on that that James Cameron computer animation for Terminator 2 and The Abyss as well. So there's a lot of connection there. So it seems like a good week to release that film. You got a chance to see a play. You went to the theaters in our Adventures in a Black Box segment this week. Steve, I went to the theater. As a thespian, one must go to the theater to experience it. And what brand new play did you get to see this week, sir? So I lived up in Chicago for 15 years 
And for 15 years, I avoided seeing this. Um, I went to the Goodman Theater and okay. I saw Christmas Carol. Oh, and so heard of that. Part, so it's currently playing at the Goodman Theater from November 19th through December 31st of this year. It's at the uh, Albert Theater at, at the Goodman downtown. Okay. So you do this and do the Chris Kendall market. Well, you know, why not? Sure. But here's the first thing you're going to think of. I, or as I thought of it, uh-huh. I've seen so many versions of this play. I've seen Martin Sheen read this. I've seen um, uh, Make It So, number one. Uh, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> His I've, name is not Make It So, number one. It is. <laughs> Professor I've X. Pa- I've seen Professor X perform as Scrooge. Uh-huh. Um, I've seen Jim Carrey as Scrooge in an animated. We've seen uh, Mickey Mouse as Scrooge. We've seen things that have been whimsical. We've seen things that have like tried to recreate like every uh, nuance of that period of time mm-hmm. um, to try to put it into some, you know, um, you know, period piece. Mm-hmm. This is none of that. This is theater. Nice. And I thought I was going to be very underwhelmed, but I wasn't. Nice. I found myself getting very emotional in this. Wow. I thought they did an incredible job. And think about what the theater is different or how society, um, while this takes place in England, because that's where the story takes place, um, the cast is very diverse. Okay. The songs that they pick are multiple languages. Um, the young um, actor who plays Ebenezer is black. Ebenezer, the adult, is white. Hmm. Uh, and th- not that that makes a big difference, but the point is, this is trying to reach a much broader audience of that. And so the sets were incredible. The the use of the stage. There's the scene at the end where the, the Christmas yet to be, and the the person who is standing as that ghost is standing in a black death costume from you know a long time ago. He's got the big long uh, bird nose, mm-hmm. and Ebenezer is standing at the far end of the stage, which makes him look itty bitty compared to this massive person at the beginning. The use of lighting, the music that is played, live music is played throughout this, and the sound rises and gets softer by the musicians, knowing the dialogue is coming that way. Um, The the ghost of Christmas past is this incredible illumination um, who flies across the audience. And the people I sat around who... You know, one of them saw it when they were a child. Uh, the school brought them to it. The couple next to me, I was sitting there talking to them. They saw it 30 years. I asked if it was the same production. No, it isn't. So I don't know how often they redo or rewrite their production. But to take something that is usually, in my opinion, at this point in my life, very tired, mm-hmm. and to make it fresh, I was blown away. Nice. And I I left there so happy I saw this. Uh, I do recommend it. If you're in the Chicago area, go see it. Uh, I think that you'll enjoy it. 
it's certainly there's a lot of families out there. It's a place to go and kind of just drink in the season a little bit. Were you the only one who was laughing out loud at the good afternoon scene? Oh, all right. So that came from <laughs> Apple uh, TV Plus. Spirited. Their their rendition of A Christmas Carol this year with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell. And they had a song called Good Good Afternoon. Yes. And uh, I, I caught it. It is when the, the uh, at the beginning of the play, when a group of people comes in to ask Scrooge for a donation. Mm-hmm. And Scrooge's response to that is, good afternoon. <laughs> like, get out of here. And um, yes, I caught that. And I was like, ah, that's where it came from. That comes <laughs> from. I, I, I love the costuming. I love the sets. Um, I like the music. I like the cast. And like I said, I, I, uh, it was, it was enjoyable, truly something that I had did not expect. Live performance, live theater is, is wonderful. I, I do recommend anybody that has a chance to get to the Goodman theater and go see a Christmas Carol and have those emotional beats that chip had. I mean, my heart grew three sizes that night. Good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Brings us to our book it, our book of the week. Oh boy, Chip, it is a special time of year, and it's time to bring back some of our favorites. We're we're headed toward the end of the year, and our favorites of 2022 are coming up, but some of our favorites of the past come up at this time of year, too. Are they haunting us, Steve? I think they might be. I think we might be haunted. This is your haunted podcast for sure. We we love talking to authors. We've talked to so many authors over the years, going on nine years of this podcasting. And one of our favorites is Mark Voger, who makes these beautiful, wonderful graphic books. They're graphic, but also certainly grabbing the zeitgeist for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And um, focusing on something. So we we did Holly Jolly a few years ago. We did Monster Mash. We did Groovy. And it looks like right now we have Brit Mania. Yeah. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, fellas. How are you? Doing really well. So glad to see you again. It's been it's been a couple of years since you released your last book, and now you've got this new one, Brit Mania. Oh yeah, no, it's a lot of fun, and um, <clears throat> we knew we knew it was going to come out uh, on the 60th anniversary of uh, of the Beatles' first uh, hit single. But we we couldn't have known that like uh, you know interest would be so high because of the Peter uh, Jackson docu series in in this music again. So so yeah, it's 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 been fun so far. So this book focuses on British rock and roll, that that whole Brit mania, Beatles, and all the other bands that came out at that time, huh? Yeah, and it it, it goes a little further, too, because there was like an overarching, uh, once Beatlemania hit, there was this overarching uh, uh, vibe in in America of like just uh, a love for all things British. So, uh, you know, I mentioned the Beatles' first hit, which dropped on October 5th, 1962. On that same day, that was the day that um, Dr. No, starring Sean Connery as James Bond, uh, dropped also. So it was, it was, it's, it's uh, synchronicity that on the same day, uh, Britain's uh, two, arguably their, their biggest cultural exports, the Beatles and, and, and Bond, 
you know, happened on the same day. But yeah, uh, television, it, it, the, the love for 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 Brits, for all things British, permeated so many other uh, formats. Uh, you know, fashion, uh, television, um, movies, and uh, just uh, p- people actually, uh, you know, walking around pretending that they had British accents sometimes. And so what we know is we can now do our Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Look at me now, Money Penny. My Sean Connery is not Sean Connery. It is Robin Williams from Mrs. Doubtfire. Look at me now, Money Penny. (laughs) And almost, uh, and and I would say for Gen Z, but uh, it's it's so old now. But it's kind of like the revisiting of Austin Powers. I mean, Austin Powers was a revisiting of that period yeah, Austin of time. Powers was was a, was a brilliant uh you know it was a parody of 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 the Bond films chiefly but the fact that he was wearing that ridiculous costume with with the uh, with the frills around the collar that was straight out of uh you know actual like rock stars like Pete Townsend wore that that same frilly thing and the the glasses that he wore looked like what uh, Peter Asher of uh, Peter and Gordon. It looked like he looked just like that guy. The same goofy glasses, you know, that Bond never would have worn. So so he was really mixing it up. He and and uh, and and he was he he did capture Brit mania as well as Bond mania. For a person who is not familiar with the 1960s and with this broad, what was the British invasion? Well, it was it is a very influential period, um, uh, triggered by um, Beatles' first appearance uh, uh, American television, and it's actually their inter- introduction. Um, they landed two days earlier uh, on October seventh, nineteen sixty four, at JFK, and they uh, two days later they're on the Ed Sullivan Show, October ninth, and uh, you know everybody was where all the screaming teenage girls were ready for them. And uh, and nobody had seen anything like this. Like Elvis Presley elicited screams when he swiveled his hips, but not at such a, a, a deafening, sustained level as what the Beatles inspired uh, at in Sullivan's stage. And um, but but the weird thing that happened was the, the reason that it's called a British invasion was that um, the Beatles weren't a uh, a one shot. They uh, they opened the doors. For uh, all these other bands, like, like in the year 1964, we, you know, so many um, British bands um, c- crossed the Atlantic after the Beatles, uh, you know, made such a splash on Ed Sullivan and and uh, you know sold so many records. Um, and uh, so I'm thinking of you know groups like the Rolling Stones and the the Hollies and uh, the Hermits, Hermits, the Yardbirds, yeah. the Animals. And um, but but the weird thing about it was that. It, it, it was all. It, it's all still with us, not just because, you know, of, of baby boomers, but young people still discover um, this music. They they might you know be scrolling around and the, they find a song and then they're like, oh wow, can't explain by the Who. That sounds great. And then they start doing deep dives. And then uh, so they these these songs and these bands still find new audiences without parental prodding my goodness how many covers have been put together i mean it has become we we think about the standard songbook of being like the 20s or 30s or whatever but really we could argue that it was the 60s yeah and uh and and uh another thing that the the beatles did that was very influential was um prior to prior to the beatles 
it was still the record company that told that told you the artist you know what song you would do next how you would dress what shows you would go on they usually tried to get you to do if you had a hit they usually tried to get you to do a a, uh, a sort of a copycat hit because it worked once it'll work again you know and and that's why that some of those careers lacked longevity the Beatles were from early uh, from before they were stars. They were very interested in in writing songs. Uh, Paul McCartney always expressed uh, admiration for Buddy Holly because he wrote his own songs. And so the Beatles, while they were putting out all their own records, they were very much interested in um, writing songs for even other bands. You know, I mentioned um, uh, Peter and Gordon. Um, Paul McCartney actually was uh, the boyfriend of, of Peter Asher's. Um, sister Jane Asher, who's a, who was a very famous model and actress. And, um, you know, so he gave them their, their first hit song. He, he wrote it for them. And, um, so they were, they were, they were covered even then, you know, and, um, the Rolling Stones probably uh-huh. never would have written songs, but everybody was realizing this is the thing to do, you know, putting it in modern context of it. Many of them have sold their, or allowed you to buy shares their catalog of, uh, in fact, th- that was the Michael Jackson story, right? Where um, Paul McCartney talked about owning the the Masters, and um, Michael Jackson ended up buying the Beatles Masters, and kind of the friendship. Yeah, to to, to Paul's chagrin, because he uh, <laughs> he he's like, I sh- I should have kept my mouth shut, you know. And then <laughs> and then I haven't seen a uh, I haven't seen like. Eleanor Rigby being used as a jingle for Twinkies yet, but you never know. <laughs> it could happen. Yeah. It could happen. How did the music influence pop culture? Well, it, 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 as I said, it, it, it spread out. I mean, it, it, um, uh, for instance, uh, everybody, when, when once this uh, mania for all things British uh, took hold, suddenly you found uh, uh, British cast members popping up on uh, in uh, British uh, actors rather popping up in the in the cast of uh television shows so for instance Laugh-In had Judy Carn and and uh uh Bewitched had Dr Bombay um uh, and um the the monkeys of course was was one quarter uh British uh it was an American band but but one member Davy Jones was British Davy Jones as a matter of fact um uh he uh performed the night that the Beatles debuted on Ed Sullivan, he has been in the Broadway production of Oliver, um, and uh, so this little guy—he uh, was well, he's always little, right? But uh, he, there he was performing uh, "Consider Yourself" uh, on stage the night that the Beatles debuted. But um, the uh, so so uh, you also had you know like Richard Dawson on Hogan's Heroes and Noel Harrison on The Girl from Uncle, and um, you had uh, uh, Morris Evans. As as uh, Morris uh, Bewitched's uh, father on Bewitched, so like, and the, the show Batman had many uh, many cast members. You know, they, they George Sanders was Mister Freeze, Roddy McDowell was the Bookworm, uh, Michael Rennie was the Sandman. You know, um, so so suddenly like the Brits were hot. Not to mention that they had uh, a lot of we had a lot of imports at the time. So for instance, uh, the Avengers um, starring Emma Peel. That was a prime. It was a British series, but it ran prime time here. So did um, Secret Agent, starring Patrick McGowan. Uh, he was also uh, in a series called The Prisoner, which he created later on in the '60s. Roger Moore, sort of almost uh, almost auditioned for the role of James Bond in um, a, a 
series called The Saint. And these all ran, these were all British series that ran in prime time uh, on uh, network television. So it, uh, and then of course. I think you may have missed a show in your, in your list there. I, I think maybe you neglected to say the words Doctor Who to me right now. Oh, yeah. Well, Who? sure. I mean, well, my first exposure to Doctor <laughs> Who was um, the Peter Cushing films from the mid 60s. But, but uh, in the early 70s, they, 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 started, uh, they started running it. And, uh, you know, it, it, was almost, it was almost like a, watching a soap opera. I think it had the same videotape. And, uh... So we, you mentioned 1964. And the the, uh, the Beatles' um, performance as the beginning of the British invasion. Is there a time that we could say is the, the definitive ending up of the British invasion? Well, um, uh, well, the, the golden period probably uh, probably ended, you know, around nineteen eight ish, because the new um, the new breed of bands, British bands that were coming in, and definitely had doors open for them by the Beatles. Uh, were were groups like um, you know Traffic and uh, Cream and uh, you know Joe Cocker like uh, groups that weren't uh, uh, exactly they well teenage girls weren't screaming at their shows anymore you know obviously uh, that that period is uh, was over because the 60s was getting more real as as the you know the decade uh, ensued you know. So um, uh, little little things were still happening uh, that were kind of kind of throwbacks to the uh, the classic British invasion period, um, but but pretty much 1968ish, you know, uh, it was uh, that 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 was the golden age ending. I do remember as a child, um, you know, I, I actually witnessed in my pajamas when I was five years old. I saw that that Ed Sullivan broadcast and. It wasn't because I was hip and I knew that the Beatles were going to be on, but my my babysitter uh, my babysitter's father wouldn't let the, the, them change the channel because there was a game on. So her and her two girlfriends came over and they were screaming in my living room, and I couldn't understand what was going on. But I got to witness the dawn of Beatlemania. But I do remember as a child wow. noticing that the Beatles were wearing like crazy clothes, like those psychedelic clothes. They were growing uh, their hair, and you know. And it wasn't the, like the same sweet, you know, Fab Four that I remember from a ch- from childhood, and that's pretty much what was happening. It, things were getting more relevant, uh, more more real. It, you can almost see society kind of maturing a little bit from hip hop, sweet nothings type songs to maybe more relevant, uh, thought provoking, d- dark topics at times, and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It, it moved from an art of commercialization to more of an art form. I, I'm, I'm throwing that out there. Certainly uh, don't hold me to it. No, I absolutely agree. Seems, and, uh, well, you know, the proof is uh, the Rolling... The, well, the Rolling Stones were always, like, you know, kind of the, the anti-Beatles. Like, the Beatles wore the white hats. The Stones wore the, the black hats. And um, But uh, uh, so the Beatles said, sang, I want to hold your hand. The Stones sang, let's spend the night together, you know. But um, the last time that they were on Ed Sullivan in, in, in November of 1969, they did the song Gimme Shelter. And um, it, you know, that song is just kind of brutal social commentary. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that it was, you know, the Stones didn't belong on Ed Sullivan anymore. You know what I mean? They were, they were just, uh, you know, and so, so that was like a, 
sort of a last gasp of of of, of that. You know, uh, when you think of the lyrics in um, the song uh, "Devil by the Stones," you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. references to the Blitz. I I, I wrote a tank. Uh, generals rank as the blitzkrieg raged and the body stank. Shouted out who killed the Kennedys, you know, like the, like yeah. Suddenly, suddenly everything was getting like much more relevant or druggy. Sure, absolutely. So, tell us about your book. You you've published this book called Britmania. What what's your style of of writing? Oh uh, well, it's um, it's thank you for asking. I mean, it's it's really fun. It's um. As you guys are kind enough to always point out, it's uh, it, you know these books are very visual. So I'm a I'm a I've always been a writer designer. Uh, had a 40 year career in newspapers as a graphic artist um, and features writers, and uh, um, so uh, I, I I do them both. But I always went after uh, interviews with people who influenced me as a child. So I do have interviews with uh, you know, for instance, like. Ringo Starr and Pete Best of the Beatles, and I I talked to um, Bill Wyman and Mick Taylor, and for two questions shouted in a bar, uh, Keith Richards of of the Rolling Stones. I talked to Do- Roger Daltrey and John Entwistle of the Who, um, the um, the Davies Brothers uh, of the Kinks, and on and on. So it's doing both. It's it's eye candy, but there's also reporting in there. And so this this the uh, the way the book is structured. I it's very I, I follow the Beatles origins because I believe that the origin of the Beatles is the origin of the British invasion. And then it branches out. And then finally, we get to one of the hilarious things about the period and confusing things is um, the, the merchandising was aimed at children, which is so weird. So there were uh, Beatles bubble bath toys and there was Beatles ice cream bars and um, you know, Beatles lunch boxes and just like all this crazy stuff that, you know, a few years later when they were, when they were, when the Beatles were being so uh, rebellious, you know, like, uh, of, like or just so uh, uh, like oh, sometimes outrageous. Um, they're talking about LSD and, and, and then Jesus, what's going on here? You know? So, um, so it's, it, 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 there's a lot of um, irony there with, with the way that um, uh, the Beatles in particular were marketed to children, they didn't really have Trogs ice cream bars or uh, or like a Brian Jones action figure, you know. But but they had a, a lot of Beatles merch. And, and to help Steve out with this a little bit, um, in the late seventies at the Chicago White Sox game, they burned disco albums. Steve, yes, it blowed up real good. Well, back in the sixties, when um, the uh, Beatles matured. Um, there were probably certain groups that were burning Beatles uh, merchandise too. <laughs> oh no! That well, you know, the Beatles albums were burnt after uh, John Lennon made that comment that the Beatles were sure. uh, more popular than Jesus. So that yeah, that was uh, you know certainly provocative. And he even just said like he tried to clean it up later at a press conference, and he said like, if only I said television was more popular than Jesus. I could have gone away with it. And then, like, all the reporters just laughed because it was very transparent, non-apology, you know. <laughs> so this book is full of memorabilia, full of pictures, full of all of these memories of this era, talking about all of the pop culture of the British invasion. Yeah, and it's, it's a lot of fun because there's, uh, like, as much, as much as I paid attention, there's, there's, like, stuff that I found that I missed. But, like, so, like, for instance... Um, What's really hilarious is uh, uh, the humor magazines, and I'm thinking 
mostly about um, mad, cracked, uh, one called sick and one called help, which was done by Harvey Kurtzman, uh, who was the founder of Med, the comic book. But anyway, they they all put you know the Beatles on their covers and they all did Beatles gags because uh, first of all, that's kind of the mission of of a uh, humor magazine is to, is social commentary. You know, it's their it's an important function. You know, going way back, uh, you know, political cartoons and everything. But they also found that uh, if they put you know the Beatles on their cover. It, that magazine sold very well. All the oh, mainstream magazines found this out too. And so, um, you know, there's a, a really famous um, painting of, um, a gorgeous painting of Ringo Starr with blonde hair that was done by uh, Frank Frazetta, the renowned illustrator. And it was a mad parody of um, Breck shampoo called Black Shampoo. And uh, so, you know, uh, and, and, and also comic books. Um, Comic books uh, played ball. They 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 put the Beatles in a in a uh, Jimmy Olsen comic. Uh, um, the Beatles met half of the Fantastic Four over at Marvel. Uh, they met the uh, the Thing and the Human Torch and their girlfriends. A lot of the romance comic books have Beatles as characters in their stories. It was like really crazy. Archie, you know, Betty and Veronica, uh, you know, were always fighting over Archie, but. He got a break, uh, you know, in the mid '60s there, because they were all about, you know, John Paul George and Ringo. <laughs> so, what this type of influence impacted movies of the time and television of the time? Tell us about, you know, what movies best represent this Britmania. The movie is a Hard Day's Night, also 1964, and I I, I argue it, it's a, it's a brilliant musical comedy, you know. Uh, or I, I, more more appropriately, a comedy with songs. Um, what, what happened there was that, you know, the the Beatles, the, the rock and roll movies that they used to do before the Beatles would be these terrible, like, kind of jukebox movies that they would put rock in the title, like Rock, Rock, Rock was the title of one of those kind of movies about the late 50s, uh, American International Pictures. And so they'd have Chuck Berry in it, they'd have, They'd have people in it, but they were just really just doing songs. Although Chuck did play a character kind of himself, but but um, they, they were t- terrible movies. They they really were just trying to cash in on the uh, on the trend, you know. And the Beatles didn't want that, like so they they just they always lucked out with with their um, with their artistic enablers, like you know when they were when they were their rise was was helped immensely by their uh, manager Brian Epstein and their recording was helped immensely by their erstwhile producer, George Martin. And then uh, in Richard Lester, the, the film director born in uh, Philadelphia, a, 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 an emigre, they uh, they really hit the jackpot. And uh, what those guys tried to do was, you know, make a real movie, make a movie that anybody could dig, you know. And so they had a, a, a writer follow them for a couple of days and just make notes. And that's why those movies, even though they're hard days night, rather, even though it's so it's scripted, but they they captured sort of the cadence and the uh, the, the Liverpudlian and and their kind of relationships and what they do very well. And and actually, um, Stephen Chip, uh, the the entertainment establishment and the and uh, you know, the media, newspapers, magazines, critics, they were very hostile uh, toward the Beatles when they first got here. And um, that yeah, oh gosh, they, all they saw was long hair which in 1964 they're 
their hair was like a, an inch over their ears, you know. But and they, they you know they thought the music was awful and uh, it, yeah it's a, the the entertainment establishment establishment was hostile. When Dean Martin introduced the Rolling Stones on on um, uh, Hollywood Palace, they weren't they great? And then he rolled his eyes, you know. But um, anyway, uh, where where they where the Beatles captured everybody, where, where they like gotcha was when that Hard Day's Night came out. All the they they couldn't help it because it was so wonderful, funny, cute. Um, they all loved like like all you know the New York Times on down. They just loved Hard Day's Night. They thought it was a great movie, and that's really where the media honeymoon began. You were asking about movies in general. The mm-hmm. follow up was Help. I don't really. I'm not really terribly fond of that movie because it's uh, it's trying now that it's still still Richard Lester, but he's trying to like it's like a James Bond parody with the Beatles and. I don't. Okay. I don't think that they. I think that first one is one of those. You can't capture lightning in a bottle twice. Let it be. Of course, uh, uh, from uh, filmed in 1969 is what led to the Peter Jackson docu series. And then some of the other guys uh, did movies also. Um, Herman's Hermits did two movies, one in England and one in Hollywood. And uh, did they play Henry the Eighth? No, I don't think they did in either movie, <laughs> but they, but they did. They, uh, Peter, uh, Peter Noon told me that when they arrived, um, their limo driver was Cary Grant's usual guy, and he said, "You have more of a crowd at the airport than Elvis Presley," you know. So they were happy about that. There you go. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm just reading a little bit about A Hard Day's Night, and it was nominated for two Academy Awards, including Best Original Screenplay. So I'm going to have to revisit this. It's it's just I, like I put it up there with you know, it's one of the uh, 25 films in my top 10. <laughs> <laughs> Great point. <laughs> Mary Poppins was 1964. They, Dick Van Dyke really nailed the British accent in that one. I'm telling you, uh, he, you know, I, I it was the first time I ever saw him, and I thought. Who's this? Then when I saw him on TV, I said, this, is, this English guy does such a great American accent. But <laughs> Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mary, oh, you know, no, it's, it's terrible. And plus all those Brits around him, you know, like they had so many, so many great British, you know, like everybody, even though the movie was made in Hollywood, everybody in the cast was British except for, for poor Dick Van Dyke doing that, um, doing that poor Cockney. But, uh, and, and nobody nobody corrected him. That's the whole point. All those British people there were going, yeah, let's just go with it. <laughs> I, my, I suspect that, that he was always do, uh, practicing his dancing steps and they didn't want to get kicked uh, so they didn't go near him. But you know, it, but the funny, funny thing about that, uh, when I was a kid, I, I, I thought, okay, it's a great children's film, whatever. And then like I, I watched it like you know, 40 years later and I realized all the stuff that went over my head, all the stuff about class, uh, about you know mm-hmm. the lower classes and the upper classes and their you know the, the father who uh, who's a banker and they do a whole dance about putting tuppence in the in your bank account rather than give it to the poor old lady selling birdseed, but the thing, Steve and Chip, that really went over my head was I never realized that Mike is trying to get with Mary Poppins through the whole movie and he'll never never make it happen. And there's, he's doing all that dancing and all that um um like he's trying to get with Mary. And there, mm-hmm. but there's even a verse where, in the song Jolly Holiday with Mary, where she actually sings, um, 
I can't remember the exact lyric, but I'll paraphrase wildly. She's basically saying, um, uh, uh, you're always a gentleman and a, and a lady near, need not fear to be alone with you because you won't try to press the advantage. And so basically she's just saying like, uh, you're a wimp and, uh, you know, and Dick Van Dyke friend zoned him. Yeah, exactly. And you see Dick Van Dyke kind of have this face for a split second. Like did my masculinity just get insulted here? You know? So yeah, that's a great movie. Catalina Caper, 1967. Little Richard is the featured musician and, uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty farcical. Uh, well, you know, they, they. I mean, people tried. I mean, like like, uh, you know, the the one that really surprised me. I never knew this, but you might remember the Spencer Davis group, or you might not. But it, mm-hmm. they had a big hit. It's a great song, and but really, people remember them now because it was the their breakout star was Steve Winwood, and he was a teenager in the band, but he had a voice that was just so soulful, and he played all the Hammond organ. But anyway. That group, the Spencer Davis group, made a movie, made a uh, uh, oh, a ghost comedy in England that never made it over here. It was so terrible. And, it, and the title was The Ghost Goes Gear. And so what a find that was. Like, wait, the Spencer Davis group was in a movie, like playing themselves? Oh. And, and it takes place in a haunted castle? This is this is madness. That was the sixties. There, yeah. there was a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff going on. And, and so we, we've, we've talked about that on the show quite a bit where, you know, television and movies, certainly very experimental at the time, still trying to find the voice with the technology that they had available to them. And so they would have, you know, the Adams family would come out or um, I dream a genie would come out. Yeah, just certainly very bizarre stuff. Certainly a, a very um, productive time to kind of play. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm I'm like really corny, but like th- those are those are all still shows that I watch. Like I just like my favorite shows are like you know Batman, the Beverly Hillbillies, and Leave It to Beaver. Like those that that's the uh, you know triumvirate <laughs> you know for me. But um, but no, you're well. The holidays to- are coming up, and you got your fancy eating table ready. <laughs> oh my god, you know. Um, it's a pool I, table, a billiard play table for for those who don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, Margaret Drysdale was coerced into running for Possum Queen. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> and they got the cement pond out back. Oh my god! <laughs> CBS got in a lot of trouble for that because uh, what, what were the, they had made? Um, they had Barney Fife and, and May, Mayberry, um, the Andy Griffith Show. They had uh, Beverly Hillbillies, and it was. Somebody had said something. It was like the hillbilly network or something. Oh yeah, there's a there's a thing called um, that that history calls uh, pop culture history calls the uh, the rural purge where they like they just slashed like uh, Green Acres and the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction and all those shows just got like canceled in one season to make way for Beretta, the Mod Squad maybe you know. So uh, yeah, the, sure. the rural purge, the great rural purge. Well, this sounds like a fantastic book. And um, it it looks like a lot of fun. Thank you for, I mean, sharing that part with us. But I know you work on other projects. How can our listeners find out more about what you what you're working on and your other projects? Oh, thank you, Chip. (laughs) No, uh, please please visit markvoger.com. M A R K, and the last name is spelled V as in Victor, O G as in George, E R. I have all uh, you know all stuff uh, like hints of what's coming up, all 
like posts about all crazy stuff. If you if you want to read about Mexican horror movies and uh, how to how to turn your your silky toys into Christmas ornaments, uh, that's the website for you. <laughs> Nice. Fantastic. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. We look forward to what you bring us next. You've, you've come and talked about such great, amazing memories over the years with all these great books. I look forward to what you have for us next. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Chip. I'll just keep trying to uh, keep cranking them out until I get to stage two dementia. <laughs> Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. There's plenty of things happening in the world, but let's talk about almost none of them. I mentioned at the top of the show that Hanukkah begins on Sunday night again. Happy Hanukkah to everybody that celebrates that. Eight crazy nights. We can bring out our Adam Sandler this week. All I can say is just bring out the food. I'm all there with you. Oh, absolutely. Let's get some brisket. We uh, we definitely have brisket on the menu for this week. Mystery Science Theater's got some things on the menu as well. They have a full week of all of their holiday episodes are rolling out at the Gizmoplex. Starting today through Thursday, they are showing Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which was uh, mentioned earlier as a part of the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Santa Claus and the Christmas that almost wasn't leading up to the final episode of season 13, the Christmas dragon coming on Friday, December 16th. Well, you got something to look forward to Steve along with avatar (laughs) avatar and the Christmas dragon. I would watch that movie right now. We're looking forward to the end of 2022. All the wrap-ups have started. Spotify rolled out their wrap, and we are looking for yours. What are your favorites of 2022? We would love to hear from you. What was your favorite movie, book, and news story of 2022, along with all of that fun music that Chip keeps showing us every day with the hashtag TMSChristmas on Facebook and Twitter? And of course, you know, when you say rap, Steve, that explains why we're dressed like at Run DMC. <laughs> it's tricky. <laughs> we have our December read-along next week. Professor Pamela Bador will be here to discuss, do they know it's Christmas yet? You should grab your copy. Uh, James Crooks was here last week. We had a great conversation with him, and we look forward to hearing from you. Prepare yourself for a romp through Sheffield in 1984. And do we have to have solos prepared, Steve? I think I think you should definitely be prepared with a solo. Thank God it's them instead of you. A little more preparation would be better. <laughs> <laughs> Our thanks to Mark Voger for joining us this week. If you're looking for a gift for the groovy folks on your list, go to markvoger.com. Check out his awesome coffee table books that he meticulously crafted for your pop culture nostalgia. Some great fun trips through history. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think so. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're still on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hessenflow. We'll see you in the future. Good afternoon! afternoon. What I wanna talk about is what I wanna Still my favorite.